I was recently reading on someone's Substack. The writer was saying that, you know, they are tired of getting these kinds of DMs or comments in their feed that are just like, link. It just says link. There's no punctuation. There's no, yeah. you know, people are, are so sort of in this consumption mode and it's like, I gotta have it. Like, give me the thing. Overconsumption is so encouraged by social media. This week, I have a conversation with Christy Harrison. She is my really close friend. And for over a decade, she's also someone whose work has significantly impacted me and the way that I think critically about diet culture and wellness culture. And I'm not the only one. She has been a journalist for over 20 years covering food, nutrition, and health. And she's also been a clinician for a number of years. And you can hear more about Christine and how she got into what she's doing because she's been on this podcast so many times. I, I can't even count. And I love talking to her every time we get to do this and non-recorded conversations with her. She has helped so many people all over the world think differently about their relationship to their bodies and food. And she's done that, you know, through her writing, which has appeared everywhere from the New York Times to the Food Network and both of her books. Her last book, Anti-Diet, came out in 2019. And her new book, The Wellness Trap, is about to be out any second. <laughs> or maybe it's out by the time you listen to this. But pre-order it because I got to read it early. I've actually been helping Christy do some book PR, which I've never done before, but she took a chance to <laughs> work with me in this way. And it's been really great. We've been working at this fast pace that I'm not really used to. And what you'll hear us talk about at the beginning of this conversation is, you know, how she's doing in the midst of a book launch and how the pace of press and media and getting ready to put this book out in the world is so different than the very solitary act of writing a book and, and being an author. So we talk about that and how she's handling the praise and criticism of having such a large platform. And we get into that, especially around the release of this book and, and how she's taking care of her own well-being within that and, and what she does participate in well-being wise. And you'll also hear a clip where I interview her on her show. She is obviously, or maybe not obviously if you if you're if you're new here and to Christy, but she has hosted a show called Food Psych for over a decade. But she recently started a new show called Rethinking Wellness and she actually had me on to interview her and I'm airing a clip of that here and we get into why she wanted me to be the one that interviews her about her new book for her show and what I found out when we recorded is that you know my episode early on of Food Psych her first show where I came on in 2013 and talked about my eating disorder and orthorexia was early wellness trap and it really gets into a lot of what was covered in this book and and she talks about how that impacted her writing about wellness and me and so many other people who have gone super down the rabbit hole of wellness culture she interviews so many people the book is so well reported and 
I'm excited for you to read it and I'm excited for you to hear us talk about it. We cover a lot in this. We get into the rise of diet drugs like Ozempic and what that is going to do on the impact of how we think about bodies. We talk about influencer culture. We talk about the pitfalls of the modern healthcare system and how that sort of leads people into alternative practices. And then that can sometimes take people into disordered eating and social media algorithms can intensify all of this. And we get into the diagnosis of hysteria and some of the history of wellness. And you'll hear that and much more, but I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for listening. And I'm so happy that that Christy's back. Here is our conversation, part one and part two. Okay, Christy, hi. I'm so happy that that you're here, that you're back on the show for the, I have no idea how many times, but many, 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 and I hope many, many more recorded or not recorded conversations in our friendship together. But I'm so happy that you're here and congrats on the new book and new podcast and becoming a mom since (laughs) I've last spoken to you here, although I've spoken to you many times, not recorded. Uh, How are you feeling about everything? Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. It's so wild to be back after all of those developments, you know, in our, in, in my life offline and that you've kind of been a part of and privy to and whatever, um, to like be coming back to the podcast to share all about it. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm, you know, all the things I'm, I'm excited. I'm overwhelmed. I'm anxious. You know, book launch is just such a wild time. It's like, there's so much, hurry up and wait, it feels like, where, you know, this whole process of writing a book is so slow. It takes like two years, in my experience anyway, it's taken two years from book deal to finished publication. So it's like a lot of slow stuff, a lot of just, you know, good pace for me as an introvert and, you know, someone who likes to take my time and long form content and processing things and highly sensitive and all that stuff. But then you get to the launch phase and it's just like, constantly thinking about you know press and events and what to do and having to say yes to all these things and you said to me something that I think was really helpful and like sort of put it into perspective where you were like it's like having your open sign on all the time and Mm -hmm. that's like so challenging for me as someone who is introverted and also has like PTSD and social anxiety and, you know, generalized anxiety and all these things that kind of make it hard for me to constantly be open to the world or having to say yes to things, you know, like I can yes and in improv, but like yes and in <laughs> life is a is a tough proposition for me sometimes because I do need like boundaries and space and downtime. And so, yeah, it's been a challenge. I mean, it's like the actual act of talking to people and sort of being engaged in conversation about my work has been great. I feel like I haven't had anyone who's like, a real naysayer yet you know even people who've like disagreed with me on certain aspects of it have been really thoughtful and good conversation partners and like I've had some really really fascinating conversations about the book but it's just kind of everything around that everything that's sort of like the preparation for it the emotional energy the sort of gearing up for all these different talks and like putting together talking points and going back and forth and I've also been like writing original pieces and you know making new content that's related to the book So like, yeah, I'm just exhausted. And I think that's something about book publishing that like a lot of a lot of people haven't really talked about in the past, or at least I hadn't seen sort of public conversations about this happening the way they're starting to now. Um, Like I saw my friend Virginia Soul Smith shared 
something about, you know, her launch experience and referenced a friend of hers who was having a similar launch experience. And then someone else who's kind of writing in this like wellness space, Pooja Lakshmi, who has a book coming or a book that just came out called Real Self-Care, shared about like the grueling nature of her launch experience and how ironic it was that it's kind of like taking her away from the real self-care practices that she does that help keep her grounded. And so, you know, I felt like less alone seeing people write about this and share about this. And I feel more more able to be open about that myself too, about like how challenging this is. And like also, you know, this is like, I'm living the dream. Sarah Peterson, that's the person Virginia was referencing, has a book coming out and she was sharing in her musings about this, you know, that she feels like, I think the headline of it was, I'm living the dream, you know? And it's like, yes, that's that's what we've stri- striven for, strived for. I don't even know the past tense mm-hmm. of that word. Um, that's what we've worked so hard for. That's, you know, that's been the goal for a lot of writers is to have a book. And, you know, for me to have a second book coming out is like such a dream come true. I've always wanted to be an author of, you know, that was like childhood dream of mine. And yet <laughs> the reality of it is like, such a mixed bag you know it's there's a lot of great stuff and there's a lot of really tough stuff and I think especially in this environment that we're in with social media and you know the way that publishing the sort of symbiotic relationship of like book publishing and internet publishing works you know there's this expectation on authors and writers to be so open to the world like to have our open sign on constantly to be available on social media and engaging in comments and you know like that all that has been so fraught for me and so unhelpful to my mental health. And I've actually shut down most of my, I like completely shut down Twitter and then have like dramatically scaled back my use of Instagram and Facebook since the last time I was on this podcast, probably. Um, And, you know, now don't even have comments open on those platforms. Like I just can't, I just, I appreciate interacting with people and getting feedback and like discovering new information and hearing how my work has resonated with people or not sometimes, you know, if they're thoughtful um, in their critiques, but I feel like the bad has far outweighed the good in terms of like what it's exposed, what social media has exposed me to. And, you know, the way that, I mean, this is structural and this is something I talk about in the book that it amplifies, um, anger, division, hate, fear, moral outrage, like, you know, novelty as well. And so all of those things are make social media sort of a recipe for spreading myths and disinformation and for just like, kind of being an assault on people's mental health, especially I think people who are sensitive and already struggle with boundaries and things like that. So, and with anxiety and, you know, all of that. Uh, Yeah. So like I have been really intentional about stepping away from social media, but even that, like I have to use it more than I've had to use it in months to promote the book and promote like events I'm doing and stuff like that. And it's just such a minefield. And even though I like send the content to my husband and let him post it and don't even go on the platforms most of the time, like it still gets me. I still get hooked in. I ask him, oh, how many people like that post? You know, mm-hmm. like I've had to tell him like, don't, don't say it. Don't actually answer that question because, you know, part of me wants to know, but sort of the wiser part of me that is like looking out for my best interest actually doesn't want to know. And it's not helpful to like start thinking that way. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, it, that part about the, likes reminds me of something that we've spoken about here on many conversations, you know, talking about eating disorder recovery of not weighing yourself. And when you go to the doctor, like saying, you've taught me this to say, to turn around and be like, oh, you know, please don't tell me the weight. I just, you you know, can explain why. Um, And that it's almost very similar, you know, like uh, that number 
I know it's not good for me to know that number. Just like it's not good for me to know that other number. It doesn't do any any good in my brain to know either of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. It is so similar in, so in a lot of ways, I think, to diet culture. I actually just had a great conversation with Julia Tertian for my podcast. It's going to mm. be coming out in a few, probably a month or so at this point. But she was saying, too, that like those numbers are not helpful to her and that sort of judging yourself by a number is something we're so conditioned to do in diet culture, right, with weight or measurements or body fat or whatever it is. And, you know, it's the same thing with social media. We're being conditioned to judge ourselves by these external numbers to, like, determine our value, our popularity, our, you know, how many people like us, right, how many people follow us. And those notions of like being liked or being followed or being influential, right? An influencer, I think, are really powerful and speak to a lot of deep human needs. And um, it's no wonder we get hooked by them, you know, just the same as like diet culture, I think, has sort of manufactured the idea that um, your weight is your worth, you know, like, I think that belief wouldn't exist without a lot of like, hard work by (laughs) sort of anti-fat forces in, you know, the past couple centuries and kind of the consistent drumbeat of that idea just being drilled in all, into all of our heads to mix metaphors. But but with social media, I feel like it's a little bit more on the surface of just like we all want to be liked. We all want to be influential in some way. We all want to have people interested in what we have to say and like, you know, waiting to hear from us and stuff like that. So all of us maybe have a little part of like, like this in ourselves, like want to have followers and be, you know, be leaders, right? So yeah, I think it it really kind of gets us where we're vulnerable and turns us into sort of approval-seeking machines or like gamifies and uh, manipulates this natural human desire for approval. And it's really Mm -hmm. problematic and and just has not been helpful for my mental well-being and for many people's mental well-being or, you know, really just overall well-being. Um, So it's been helpful for me to take a step back. But now, being back so in the world and having to dip my toe back into social media, it's like, oh, that, you know, it's so easy to get sucked back into that mindset. It's just right there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I. It's it's so intense. I, I think, you know, what you were saying about the numbers and the metrics and the, the, the tie-in, you know, I think about that with, it, it shows how, like, in, in my case, I think that number on social media which for me it's not it's not even that huge of a number but it's bigger than you know someone with a personal account right and one day i woke up and i had that this was like 2 years ago i don't know why it was like 9 p.m. on a sunday i had that blue check mark thing and mm-hmm. that gave me a hit of dopamine and and then you know that and that follower count as you know cuz i've i've told you about it. it used to really really bug me now i kind of just laugh about it but it's been going down like so, so consistently and it used to vacillate a little bit and it would, um, but it could like t- take me out. Like I would see it in the morning and, j- and now I just don't go on there. I see it go down. I'm like, well, another hundred people who decided they disliked me today, you know, or whatever it is. And, um, but, but it's really interesting because, you know, I, I think about that and, but then I also think about like, and this is similar to with body image, right? Like we live in a world that treats people in larger bodies bad badly and we have systems that are set up that are really bad and discriminate towards and your first book covers this so much and there's all of this anti-fat bias and internalized and all this stuff and then same with this this number on 
social media, it's, it's similar. Like I have gotten opportunities because of that blue check mark. And I have maybe not the blue check mark, but the follower count. And people have thought of me differently because of that or treated me. And not really, I'm sure like the good, like there are people who do and people who don't, but there's a truth that that like means something to people. And same the other way with body stuff too, where it's like people have treated me differently at different sizes. And it's, I don't like any of those facts, but I do totally see the parallel. And it's just really wild and problematic and makes me sad the more I, it seems really, really bleak and complex. And the new book talks about social media and wellness culture in particular and and social media in general in a way that unpacks a lot of this stuff and ways we can protect ourselves against it. And I'm glad that you've, you know, found some systems that help and, and try to help and, and especially the pacing of it too, like the pacing of social media and just, you know, part of that is like you were saying with, with launching a book and, and even just journalism and online media in general, like, you know, it's quick, like it's, it's a pace that doesn't suit me well. And I can't keep up with, honestly, that's why, you know, a, a podcast is much better for me than a TikTok, right? And, and, and what you were saying, like you, you feel more comfortable about the, the process of writing the book and the promotion. It's like a completely different hat to wear and a completely different pace. And so, I guess I'm curious, you know, it, within this pace and the contrast between writing the book, how are you taking care of yourself or what are some things that you're doing that help you? And, you know, related to the the content of the new book, like, are there any well-being habits or routines that you've leaned on in general or within this intense life period for you? Yeah, you know, it's... It's a challenge. And I feel like I often don't have time to do the things I know are helpful, you know, but I try as best I can to just make a little bit of time for, you know, going outside. That's one huge thing because I work from home. I could easily spend all day indoors. And some days I do, you know, some days I don't leave the house, but I try to, you know, at least step foot outside when I can and ideally take a walk with my daughter, with my husband and daughter, you know, have a little family walk and watch my daughter point out the moon obsessively. Oh, the moon. Really? And she's That's like, so moon peak. She'll say moon peak when it's like peeking through the trees. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So that like gives me so much joy. Just even like going and spending some time with her, you know, and on mm-hmm. break, like a few minutes just to play and give her kisses and see her point out things and, you know. Letters. She's always like, if there's a couch around, she's like, flop, flop. <laughs> loves to like flop on like soft surfaces. It's very sweet. Oh my um, God. So cute. It's so cute. So yeah, that's a huge, like that, you know, just spending time with her brings me so much joy. And that's like a, you know, free, relatively easy thing I can do and make time for in my day. Um, beyond that, like, I don't know. I mean, I do yoga, I practice yoga and like that always, you know, it's a, wellness practice it's something that's part of the wellness industry and yet it's also like has such deep roots and it's not goes back so much further than this commodified version of wellness that we have and I get so much out of it for anxiety management for pain management you know for just sort of overall presence and kind of the meditative aspect of it and that's something I try to make time for but really don't have as much time for lately especially in this wild launch period making time to just relax and watch TV at the end of the day or have real weekends. Like I, I haven't had, you know, I've had to work on weekends sometimes lately, which has been difficult, but um, 
you know, making time to just relax, like zone out, watch TV, hang out with friends, do things that have nothing to do with work and just kind of like forget everything, just like escape a little bit has been really helpful. And, you know, intuitive eating, I think eating in a way that feels supportive and like making sure to eat regularly and enough has been really helpful. And we've talked about this before. I can't remember if we talked about this the last time I was on this podcast, but, you know, I definitely get into a cycle with overwork where I'll be like, oh, it's like past lunchtime. I'm so hungry and I can't take a break and like, you know, grappling with myself of like, when can I stand up from my desk and like go get food? And thankfully, my husband is the primary stay at home parent, primary childcare, and he like cooks for all of us and he'll just like bring me my lunch. And it's so, so, so helpful, you know, to have that. So um, I couldn't I couldn't take care of myself nearly as well through food, I think, if it weren't for him. I mean, the flip side of that is that, you know, when he does have, he does work part-time and there are days when I need to be in charge of all that. And like, I find that, you know, even if I'm like watching my daughter, but then she's napping and I'm doing some work during those two hours or whatever, like I have an easier time, I think, setting boundaries on work when I know it's like, well, that's the only, only choice I have, you know, when, when it's just me versus like when he's here to do that, I'm like, okay, well now I can just work through lunch, you know? So I have to kind of grapple with that in myself too. And like, sometimes I will just take time off work and like go sit with them and eat lunch together, you know, just so I am not like constantly chained to my desk. Yeah. So those are kind of like the big practices that have been helpful to me. One practice that's like not at all, not at all what I would consider well-being just is very much like part of the wellness industry and wellness culture. And like, I don't know if it necessarily has any benefits, but there is some science behind it, but it's not something I would really endorse. It's like a particular skincare device that I use for acne and takes like half an hour or something. And I can do it while I'm watching TV or while I'm like reading stuff or listening to podcasts or whatever. And, you know, I think who knows if it's actually helping with the acne and it seems to be somewhat maybe, but also like the acne is a result of the stress that I'm under and I tend to break out when I'm stressed out. Like some of the worst breakouts I've had were before like a big event, a big speaking gig, something like that, you know, and, um, and they have to do with hormones as well. Like when I was doing IVF to get pregnant with my daughter was like the worst my skin has ever been. And there's something about, you know, being an adult with acne. (laughs) It's like, especially if I'm going to have to be like the face of this book, even though I'm just doing virtual stuff, like I want my skin to look good. And that's like, I'm, grappling with that as someone who is, you know, generally trying to be body accepting and positive and, but also like, you know, it's like, where's the line, right? There's, there's like a skin acceptance movement that sort of like encourages people to embrace stuff like acne. And, you know, I'm, I'm working on that and I'm trying to do that, but I'm not quite there yet. And so I like have this one little thing that's like my wellness industry thing, you know, I still have my foot in that. And I also use like dermatological products that like my dermatologist prescribed and you know probably what I need to do is actually go on the more intensive treatment regimen that I was on before I got pregnant and was breastfeeding because the last time I saw the dermatologist she was like oh you're on like a pregnancy regimen do you want to switch back and I was like well I don't know let's keep going with this for a while and we'll see and yeah I think I probably just need to switch back to something a little more a little stronger but you know it's funny you can sort of just get into these habits it's like I don't the skincare thing is not really harming me I don't think it's not really taking away from any sort of overall well-being if anything it's kind of like integrating into this you know these little downtime moments that feel good overall for my well-being um and I'm not like I think you know you've probably noticed that I'm not even saying what it is and I'm like super um 
not at all endorsing it. This is like an unendorsement of kind of like, I don't really know if this thing works, but it's just something I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's kind of the energy that I wish people would come to these kinds of conversations with about wellness stuff where it's like, yeah, I do this one thing. It's kind of weird and who knows if it works, but it brings me some amount of pleasure or at least it doesn't feel like it's hurting me. And, you know, I, I feel like I might as well try rather than sort of this proselytizing energy that I think we sometimes, I know I've definitely gotten into this in the past with certain wellness practices or diets and things like that, where it's like, this changed my life. You should yeah. do it too. Here's all the research. Here's all the reasons, you know, and it becomes very um, problematic, I think, to people in the path of that kind of information, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I'm someone so, so susceptible to people who I know and like and trust. And that could be people that I have a parasocial relationship with or my friends. But even like, it's funny, Christy, because I agree. And I always try to take that approach with things too. But I, but I do think as human beings, we want to share what works for us. And having grown up with blogging and the internet and social media, it's so baked into me that like, if I eat a snack that I like, I want to figure out how I can eat it every day, tell everybody about it and, you know, increase the dose. <laughs> like it just kind of my brain goes there without even really thinking about it. And even as you were talking, even though you were so like, yeah, I don't know. I do this. I try it. I'm like, all right, what is this? I want to get it. What are these creams? <laughs> like I'm all it. It's so funny. Like my brain just goes there. And I don't know. And what the and the other thing I think for so much of this and and influencer stuff and just people sharing in general is it's like everybody is so different. And we could do the exact same thing for our skin and it could work for you and it could not work for me. But we're all why are we so conditioned to take recommendations from each other? And and sometimes I have taken a recommendation from a friend and it's been also great for me. And sometimes it's like just like something that could work for your hair or my hair could be completely, like, you know, just yeah. we accept that there are differences there. And with eating and all of it, it's like, it's just, it's so fascinating to me how pervasive that that all is. Yeah, I think it is like, in some ways, a product of the, of the internet, right? This sort of mm -hmm. like, emphasis on sharing and you know, blogging maybe helped start it. I mean, I'm sure it's human nature too to want to share information, but I think just the way that we are that we sort of crave and seek out those kinds of recommendations and the way that that outweighs the kinds of recommendations that are actually tailored to us from a healthcare professional, like, is interesting, you know? And I think that has a lot to do with the, I mean, we've talked a lot in talking about this book about the problems with the conventional healthcare system, how people feel unserved or dismissed or unheard, how a lot of people don't even have access to good healthcare, you know? Like, going to the dermatologist for a lot of people might be a prohibitive expense. And so they all they have is, you know, skincare recommendations they find from people online or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a real problem. You know, the fact that people don't have equal access to these kinds of care. And even when they do have access to care, it's not always the quality of care and delivered with a kind of empathy and compassion and sort of like time, you know, doctors don't often have a lot of time in the conventional healthcare system for their patients. So all of that, I think, contributes to this desire to share information online, to share on social media. I was recently reading on someone's Substack. I forget who it was. It might have even been one you sent to me. But um, the writer was saying that, you know, they are tired of getting these kinds of DMs or comments in their feed that are just like, link. It just says link. There's no punctuation. There's no... Yeah. 
hey, I love this product you're using yeah. or the, like this outfit you're wearing. Can I have the link for where you got it? It's just link. It's like so, you know, people are, are so sort of in this consumption mode and it's like, I got to have it. Like, give me the thing. Overconsumption is so encouraged by social media that, you know, we've devolved into this sort of lexicon. It's just one word and you're supposed to know what it means. And it's like, there's no effort at politeness or compassion or whatever, you know, like that to me symbolizes so much of what's wrong with like wellness culture and, you know, consumer culture more broadly, I think. Yeah, I know. My my friend Serena, who I co-host Spiraling with, she is a, a proper capital I influencer and has told me that, you know, link thing that happens to her all the time. And she will even go so far to put in to post her stories like this is where this is from, this is where this is from. And then people, if she does that still, will, will ask where those things are from, even though they're linked. And then they, she'll also get people to be like, how dare you put that in where it's linked from? And then she'll get like, if she doesn't do it, she gets, it's just like, it doesn't even matter. I mean, it's just a really complex, socially strange situation we all find ourselves with being the internet. And and it's it's interesting for me because in some ways, and I think you know this about me, I love sharing and friendship and I've always been one of those people who, and I think that's why, why you know, early stage blogging suited me and, and early Instagram suited me. And now what it is, is, is completely different. But, you know, when I read something, I do want to send it to like seven friends and, you know, I, you've been the, you've been the victim of this, you know, like <laughs> I've sent you like 800 podcasts and I've, I've sent you like, Hey, the, listen to this quote. Like, I love that. I mean, and, and I think so many of us do, like, we love to geek out about the movies that we like and the things that we read and the things that we wear. And, you know, I had like a, a tangential friend, you know, I was like, oh, I like your shoes. And she's like, yeah, I saw you wearing them a couple weeks ago. And I figured out where they were from. And I was like, oh, cool. And I like that kind of thing happens to me quite a lot. And I don't know why I don't know. Or I, you know, I, I like this thing that you read. Where's that from? And so I don't, and this is like real life things like in my neighborhood with, with people that I know. And, and I really like that. But then I also, and I think that's innocent enough, but then I'm also like, does it take away from our own discovery of things and music and finding communities around things because, and that's why, you know, and we talk about this and, and what people are about to hear, Christy and I recorded an episode for her new podcast. She is the host and producer of Food Psych, the classic show that started in 2013. And get this, we started our podcast on the exact same day in March of 2013. We figured that out this year. <laughs> So wild. I can't believe it took us that long to figure it's that out. It's so weird and cool. But anyway, she has a new podcast called Rethinking Wellness that I came on to guest host. And I was interviewing Christy about her new book, The Wellness Trap, and asking her what you're about to hear, because I'm going to play a big clip of it here. But I asked her, you know, you'll hear why she decided to make this the topic of her book and we get into a few bits of it that I found particularly interesting, including we talk about hysteria and some of the the history of that word. We talk about functional medicine. We talk about the connection between diet culture and wellness culture. And in it, at one point, Christy, you say something like, oh, actually, I know you're interviewing me, but let me know a little bit about your history with this a little bit. And, and I explain my trajectory into wellness culture. And 
I don't know if I said this in in that clip that you're about to hear or not, but but one thing is like it was such a community for me. It was such an identity for me. And I think that's what a lot of us have around sharing things that we're into, whether it's movies or books or wellness practices or, you know, whatever it is. And especially if you're not working from an office or you're not in school anymore, that's the internet at its best. And 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 yeah being people who who want to be connected and there's complication with it, I think, as we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. It is complicated because I think there's so much about the old internet pre-social media that was great and that like people could connect and find communities around things. I do also remember there being some difficult things and like proliferation of misinformation even then, but you know, it wasn't the sort of level of spread that it is now. It's like now I think you can't really get away from the the downsides of it too. You know, there's the the benefits and the community and the connection, but then there's also the way that social media just amplifies the toxicity, amplifies mis and disinformation and anger and outrage and all the things, you know. And so it's yeah, it's hard to hard to take the good without a, a big dose of the bad too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just going back briefly to to what you were saying about self-care and 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 taking care of yourself in this. I was thinking about it the last time you were here on on my podcast, I do remember it was right before you had a baby. Like you were super pregnant and we record I'll link to it here if you want to go back and listen to that, but it was I split it into two parts because we recorded for like three hours and it was one of those nights. Your husband happened to be out of town. I remember this because that's right. Because we both like one of the things I was talking about is how, you know, since I live alone and and eat alone and I don't have any of those markers and boundaries of ending at the end of the day, I often will have dinner at like 10 p.m. hunched over the the sink, you know, or I'll have crackers for dinner, whatever. And I'm not not proud of that, but and working on it still. <laughs> but when things get busy, you know, that's kind of the first thing to go. And and something you said of just like, you know, watching TV at the end of the day, it's like I think about de decompressing. You know, my mom would always say like, I just need to decompress at like, I think we do. Like, I think there's something about booking and bookending your day with going on a walk or going out to dinner with a friend or, you know, calling a friend or sometimes I meditate at the end of the day or I do something, but getting back into your body and off of the screen. And, and, you know, especially if you work from home or in my case, I work from my kitchen bedroom (laughs) office, like dining room, it's all one room. And it's, it's really interesting to kind of think about just how I don't know we're we're bodies we're organisms we're connected to each other and 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 work but we're also trying to make all these things work and take care of ourselves in the midst of it and um one thing I love about your book is that you are so honest and you tell so many stories of of other people that are so well reported and and so well researched and you're so compassionate you know and and I think my my role in our our friendship, you know, in these last couple weeks has really been as as a one of your first readers and as someone who's gotten to read early drafts of the book and, you know, such a supporter of you and your work. But I, I think in this book in particular, I've been someone that can see all these angles of it and you approach it with so much empathy and compassion because and understanding that, like we've been saying, the stuff is really complex and and easy to get sucked into. And I have, and you have, and and I love your your openness with with that. So I guess you know one more question for you would just be like, what does this 
so far, the book, as the day we're recording this, it hasn't even come out yet, but you've been talking about it and doing media for it. So what has surprised you about it? And how does this round of your book launch compare to the launch of your first book? Yeah, it's so interesting to be like in this part of the process, because as we're recording this, the, the book isn't out yet, and it's coming out in like a week. Um, and it is a different experience for sure than than for my first book. I think with my first book, I was so much more like connected on social media and just constantly, you know, had this barrage of like feedback coming in. And so in a way, I sort of knew more what to expect or I was, I don't know, I just it like the the level of feedback and the level of sort of like praise and criticism that was always coming at me was just sort of constant. And I knew it was going to ramp up when the book came out, but I was already sort of prepared just by like dealing with a steady drip of praise and criticism. And it was not good for me. It was not good for my well-being. I, you know, have subsequently recognized that and seen like what a difference it's made in my mental health when I've stepped back from social media and like been less available to people and less sort of hooked into all that praise and criticism and just input from other minds, as Cal Newport says, you know, and tried to prioritize more solitude and more just like real connections with people I really care about and, you know, letting in the the sort of feedback from other people more judiciously over the course of, you know, writing the book and being pregnant and taking maternity leave, like I really was able to step away so much. And then even in the process of revising and editing the book and proofreading, I still kind of maintained a bit of that bubble. And now that I'm coming back out into the world and sort of have my open sign on again, I'm talking to a lot more people, you know, not just the people I interviewed for the book and had, you know, been talking to and in conversation with for years before that, but also like new people who were interviewing me about the book I think one thing that's surprising me is just how much people are resonating with these ideas and how much people have their own stories, you know, even people that I wouldn't necessarily expect, like people that I'm talking to about a different topic, you know, about something from my first book, but then people all have stories about this. And I think it's, it's been really interesting to just talk to people and hear their experiences. And so, and, and like so much of how that mirrors the people that I interviewed for the book and my own experience. And, you know, that this is just like something that, I think is starting to be explored more. And like, I've talked to many people who were like, yeah, I thought I was done with diet culture. I was, you know, no, the diets don't work. And yet I got really pulled in. I got really, you know, hooked by this thing about gut health because it just seemed like it was different. And it seemed like it was, I was really taking care of my health. And then I got into it and realized it was just more of the same, you know, or that it was, that it was like setting me back in my disordered eating recovery. And, you know, so it's, I think people are starting to kind of see that more and open up to it more, but it's something that isn't necessarily as discussed as like diet culture is now in this, in this space, you know, like I think so many people, like so many mainstream outlets are using the term diet culture now in ways that I hadn't expected. And, you know, anti-diet stuff and intuitive eating is like really pretty popular. Although now we're in the age of Ozempic and diet drugs, and that's kind of changing the discourse a little bit too, in the way that those diet drug companies are influencing the conversation, I think is really interesting. But the anti-diet approach has become pretty mainstream. But I think what hasn't kind of come into the public conversation as much yet is like how the conventional healthcare system is failing people in some ways that's then leading them to these wellness traps, really, the, these wellness practices that ultimately can be so harmful. You know, I think there's pieces of that conversation happening, like especially the way that women and marginalized people are unserved or underserved by the conventional healthcare system. Like, I feel like that's been kind of discussed and talked about in, in you know, sort of 
in the public discourse for the last several years, but the piece from that to like how it makes people vulnerable to all of these problematic and ineffective and potentially harmful um, supposed solutions, I think is, you know, it, that's sort of an emerging conversation. And I'm excited to be a part of that. Me too. Me too. Well, you just mentioned Ozempic and these diet drugs and thinking about your last book and, and wellness culture, something that just has been on my mind so much because people, I think, don't necessarily realize that they're, that things, you know, wellness culture that teeters on diet culture, just the nuances here. And, you know, obviously there's been a lot of talk about and pieces written about Ozempic in particular, these diet drugs. When things feel bleak, you know, and and to me, like I, I wasn't, I happened to be in a conversation with a bunch of people. I don't even know how it came up, Ozempic, but it just was right there. Like somebody had it or somebody this and that. And I just got really quiet. And, you know, I think people kind of knew enough about me that they were like, oh yeah, you probably... That probably really, you really don't like that. <laughs> you know, like people knew enough to like tell, to kind of know I wasn't going to be that sort of participant in the conversation. But I, I also, and we, I feel like I've asked you a version of this question every time you've come on the show, but, and there's, there's ways that you use to talk about this in the wellness trap of like how to protect yourself from these sorts of conversations. But, you know, specifically around these, these drugs and what that's doing to our culture around bodies. And is there anything you can leave us with about how to, extricate ourselves from those conversations or, you know, anything you can leave us with of how to protect ourselves from these sorts of difficult situations. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so tricky, right? And these drugs are so in the public discourse at the moment. I think one thing is just to think really critically and be extremely wary of diet drugs in general, especially ones that are being hailed as miracles. And, you know, to the extent that you're recovering from disordered eating and trying to heal, trying to heal your relationship with food in your body, you know, being really protective of that recovery and that healing and trying not to let this, this sort of stuff in, you know, whether that means skipping reading the article about Ozempic that your phone decided to recommend to you or your, you know, social media or whatever, changing the subject in those kinds of conversations or bringing up, if you feel safe with the person you're having the conversation with, bringing up how hearing about that stuff is harmful to you and your recovery or challenging for you and that you're trying to heal your relationship with food and that you just really can't talk about that kind of thing right now. And then in terms of like your own awareness and sort of just thinking critically and skeptically, I think it's just super important with anything in wellness culture. And I think Ozempic sort of straddles the line between like diet and wellness culture, although it's been really interesting to see that, you know, some of the same people who and groups that are like you know, very anti-vax for like the COVID vaccine and have all this rhetoric and discourse around like not wanting to put anything, you know, untested in their body or being wary of pharmaceuticals and wanting to let things take their natural course or whatever. Some of those same people and organizations are like gung-ho about these diet drugs, which are, you know, also the product of the pharmaceutical industry and also um, developed rel relatively quickly. But unlike the COVID vaccine, which is, you know, has been shown to be safe and effective and lots of large studies and also is there for um, responding to a public health emergency, you know, these diet drugs don't have as much evidence behind them and also, you know, were developed for something that is being framed as a public health emergency, but that is actually much more an issue of anti-fat bias and weight stigma, you know, stigmatizing people in larger bodies. It's important to take the long view and just to recognize that, these drugs may be hailed as miracles right now, but in fact, you know, five years, 10 years down the line, maybe even sooner, 
we're likely to see some really significant side effects coming out. We're already seeing that actually as more and more people are taking them, you know, gallbladder, kidney issues, pancreas, you know, thyroid tumors, like in, in rats, like in lab animals, there've been documented cases of, you know, a documented high risk of thyroid tumors from taking these drugs. Um, and so much so that the FDA required a, blo a black box warning label to be put on these drugs. And they don't do that lightly. Like that's not something they typically do. They didn't even do that for Fenfen, which was the notorious diet drug in the 1990s that got recalled ultimately and caused a lot of heart valve damage for the people who are taking it. Didn't happen. Belvic, which was recalled in 2020, also didn't have a black box warning label. So like the fact that this one does speaks to me as there's already some real known risks from this drug. And Right now, they're being framed as rare but serious side effects, you know. But I think as more and more people start taking them, the rarity of them and the, just the number, the sheer number of people affected by these side effects are going to be much greater. We're going to start to see lawsuits. There's already lawsuits being formed for injuries from these drugs. You know, I think it likely will be will reach sort of a high enough scale that we may see. And I think I think it's pretty likely that we'll see these drugs have the same sort of trajectory as previous diet drugs like Fenfen or um, Belvique, where they end up getting pulled from the market. If they don't get pulled from the market, I think they may go the way of some other drugs that have stayed on the market where they just are sort of not used and, and are sort of known to have more undesirable side effects than, than sort of benefits. Um, and we see that with these drugs in terms of, you know, the digestive issues, the nausea, vomiting, constipation, like sort of constant digestive problems that some people have on these. And that pretty much, I mean, the vast majority of people who take them have to some degree. Um, some people who take them, it's it's quite debilitating and it, it forces them to have to go off the drugs because they can't, you know, deal with the side effects. For some people, they kind of manage and get by with these digestive side effects. But, you know, I think that's one thing to consider, too, is like it does reduce quality of life for a lot of the people taking it and does, you know, do the supposed benefits of weight loss outweigh those risks? For some people, the answer might be yes, right? And that's the that's the case that the drug makers are making is that high body weight is a disease and needs to be addressed. And if there are side effects or even safety concerns with these drugs, it's worth it because this supposed disease of high body weight is such a problem. I happen to come down on the side that high body weight is not a disease in and of itself and it's not worth the risk of taking these drugs and I think we're going to see a lot of people get harmed by these drugs. People have already, you know, and so I think just to consider all of that and to to take the long view and see that, you know, the people who might be seemingly benefiting from these drugs now might be telling you something very different a few years down the line. The thing that made me so sad about this and and I wish I I think it is true and like I probably just shouldn't read these articles like you like you mentioned and extricate myself from these conversations but when I when I have and I and I do read them I just get so sad about how you know like you were saying with skin and acne and standards of beauty have existed for millennia and they will exist but the standard of beauty to include thinness is one that you know has been in the culture but then we had the pendulum swing to more, you know, body acceptance and body positivity at one point. And then to see that pendulum swing back more recently and to see these diet drugs and to see the conversation of just like if people just like give up on acceptance and are just like, yeah, I just want to get thin. I don't care if I'm going to be ill. Like it's just, it makes me bummed. Anyway, thank you for getting into that and and sharing all that. And thank you so much for your work over the last decade that it's been in my life and this new book and 
everything that you share. I'm just so grateful to to know you and get to be your friend. And even if I I wasn't your friend, to to have your work is a a privilege to the world. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure talking with you as always. And yeah, thanks for having me back. And I'm I'm so grateful to have you in my life too. Mm, well, people can go, they're going to get a taste of our conversation on your podcast, but they can listen to the full podcast on rethinking wellness. And we even have a bonus bit, which is about the history of wellness culture, which is really, really interesting. And one of my favorite parts of the book, The Wellness Trap. And where can people find that bonus bit if they want it? And where can people most importantly, get the book? So that bonus bit is available on my Substack for Rethinking Wellness for paid subscribers. It's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. The Rethinking Wellness Substack also has transcripts of all the free episodes as well. Um, your episode will actually, this is coming out before your episode comes out. So I think when people are listening to this, it may not be out yet. Although your episode is already available to paid subscribers early because we do also early releases for paid subscribers. So if they want to listen now, if you can't wait till you know, Monday when it comes out, um, feel free to become a paid subscriber. I would love that. And if you want to just wait until it's out for free, you can search for Rethinking Wellness wherever you're listening to this and listen to it for free there and subscribe. And The Wellness Trap, the book, is available wherever you get your books starting next week. You can pre-order it now anytime before April 25th, which is the day it comes out. Also, when you pre-order, you get access to a special bonus webinar that I'm doing about the book and I'm answering questions and it's like a cool little perk of pre-ordering. So once you pre-order, you can submit your proof of purchase at christyharrison.com slash book bonus to get that webinar. And they've been hearing about it for months because we've been, I've been letting them know. So if you've been listening to the bus, this podcast, this is the same book. This is the one. This is the author. She's here. Um, Christy, thank you so much. I love you. And thank you everyone for listening. Here's us talking on Rethinking Wellness. I couldn't think of anyone better, anyone I would more want to do that. And I feel like we're just, you know, your story and your experience with wellness culture was so inspiring to me and thinking about wellness culture in this book. And it's been an interesting journey for both of us, I think, out of the difficult, problematic forms of wellness culture that we both fell into. So I just think we have, we have a lot to talk about and a lot of commonalities in that way, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I was reading it, I just <laughs> so many, many of the stories that I read and all the people that you interviewed and all the research that you did, I had so many eye opening moments. And then also so many moments of like, oh, could have been me, could have been me. <laughs> and just relating so much to so many people that you that you interviewed. So when did this idea first form for you? And what was some of that early research like and what drew you to want to unpack this topic more? Yeah. I mean, it's been such an interesting like 10 plus years of being sort of an observer of wellness culture. And I was actually making, I made a little page on my website that sort of like catalogs all the writing and speaking I did about wellness culture leading up to the book. Probably not all of it because I think I missed some, but like I was like tagging things and putting them in a little summary block and stuff. And the one of the first things that was there was your episode from 2014 of Food Psych, Aww. you know, where we talked about orthorexia. We talked about like, you know, the quote unquote healthy behaviors that you were doing in your pursuit of wellness spiraling into something really disordered. And 
I was working with people with orthorexia at the time as a dietitian and sort of steeped in how wellness culture was harming people without sort of naming it as that and without knowing everything that I do now of in the in the past 10 years of like spending time observing this and researching but I think your story was like part of the genesis of this book so I think that was really special and I, I appreciate that. Wow I remember that day so well it, it was when I first met you. <laughs> Yeah, when you the the first time we went in person was when you showed up at my door because that's yeah that's who we both were at the time. We we're just like yeah. weird boundaryless people that would you know would do something like that. Yeah, it worked out well in in this friendship. <laughs> it really did. I'm so glad. Could have gone many ways, but <laughs> it's really lucky. Wow, wow. I can't. I it, it seems like lifetimes ago, and also not that long ago somehow in my brain. I know. I know. I feel like a completely different person. And also it's like, feels very close at the same time. Soon after that, I think I wrote a piece about clean eating for Refinery29. You know, clean eating was very much in the discourse and showing up for me and my work with clients with disordered eating. And that was like one of the first manifestations of this social media version of wellness culture, I would call it, I guess, that I really observed close up. But I was very much a part of wellness culture before that, too. I was so caught up in like the proto-clean eating, I guess you could call it, like the farm-to-table movement and Michael Pollan and Marion Nessel and thinking about food politics in this way that was very ostensibly about and, and to some extent is about like food systems, but also is very demonizing of particular foods and the food industry and, you know, has a lot of fat phobia baked in, a lot of weight stigma and anti-fat rhetoric that was for me sort of my orthorexia, my orthorexic thinking about food kind of stemmed from that approach or that philosophy. And so coming out of that and starting to work with eating disorders, I saw clean eating as like a new manifestation of, you know, the the sort of crunchy farm to table stuff that I had taken part of. And then from there, I think it's just it's just morphed and shape-shifted in so many different ways. And, you know, wellness culture, as we talked about in what we're going to post as a bonus episode to this one, we talked about like the history of wellness culture and sort of how it intertwines with diet culture. And so I think it, you know, diet culture really is sort of baked in from very early on in the like 1970s genesis of wellness culture as I, as, as it sort of exists now. And I think there's been a lot of interesting unfolding, particularly with the pandemic that led me to want to think about wellness culture and keep unpacking and exploring it. Because in my first book, Anti-Diet, I covered wellness in the second chapter. And it was like, really tough to rein myself in. I definitely felt like I could write a whole book just about that and put it on my list of like potential next book ideas, because it just felt like there was so much more there. I didn't turn that into a real book proposal or even know for sure I wanted to do that as my next book until 2020 when the pandemic happened. And then I actually ended up getting my book deal on January 5th of 2021, like the day before the fateful January 6th. So wild, like such weird timing. And so, you know, I was already starting to think about like the conspiracism and the role of social media in fomenting more and more extreme wellness content and leading people down rabbit holes towards like anti-vaxxing and swearing off all kinds of conventional medicine and, and going 
completely into the supposedly natural space where, you know, a lot of things are really unproven and potentially harmful. And then January 6th, I think just helped clarify for me the role that social media algorithms are playing in in driving people towards those extremes. And, you know, some of the research that was coming out on how social media amplifies division and hate and drives people toward those extremes, you know, really resonated with what I was seeing already in in wellness culture and had seen so many people kind of individually falling down rabbit holes with clean eating and that sort of anti-food bias and demonization of certain foods and elevation of others. So I've seen that a lot in my clients who are recovering from disordered eating kind of over the years, but something else I saw starting to really pop up more and more, it seemed like around 2020 was clients and readers or listeners coming to me with questions like, my functional medicine doctor diagnosed me with leaky gut syndrome, or my naturopath told me I have adrenal fatigue, or this questionnaire online, or this wellness influencer told me that I have chronic candida or whatever. And I'm being told to cut out all these foods and take all these supplements, but it's really affecting my relationship with food. It's making me feel really disordered with food, or it's setting me back in my eating disorder. Maybe the person was recovered or recovering, and now it's like threatening their recovery. People come to me being like, what should I do? How can I like do this medically necessary diet while also not, you know, destroying my relationship with food. And whenever I get those kinds of questions, my typical response, and I I mean, same when I get these recommendations for myself too, as someone with multiple chronic illnesses, you know, if a doctor kind of offhandedly says, oh, you might try cutting out blah, 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 or whatever, I'll go to the research and see what the science actually says and, you know, look at whether this actually has a strong evidence base or not, because I think that's really helpful in, in deciding like, is this something that is truly medically necessary and could be helpful and I can frame it as self-care? Or is this something that is, you know, not helpful, potentially harmful, or just just not evidence-based, in which case, like, I don't want to put myself at risk or put my recovery at risk or have other people put their recovery at risk, you know? And so when I started really looking into those kinds of questions and and have been doing this for years, but it, it started to become like really a pattern to me, I think, when I was thinking about wellness culture in this way, you know, I would notice that there really wasn't a lot of good evidence behind these things. And in some cases, the diagnoses themselves, the supposed diagnoses that people are coming in with aren't evidence-based either. Like those things I mentioned, you know, adrenal fatigue, chronic candida, leaky gut syndrome, they all have some grain of truth to them, but they're the supposed diagnoses themselves are really full of misinformation and dubious diagnoses, as I call them. So that was really a driving force, I think, behind this book, too, of wanting to unpack all of this misinformation and grains of truth that get blown up into like, you know, popped out into popcorn of of misinformation that I think is affecting more and more people. And I'm seeing like books and podcasts and things that are in this functional and integrative and alternative medicine space become increasingly popular and taking a lot of people in, in ways that I don't think are justified given the the lack of really strong evidence behind them. And for me personally, as someone with those multiple chronic health conditions, many of which are 
often prescribed diets and sort of functional and integrative interventions like, oh, you have autoimmune conditions, cut out gluten, cut out dairy, cut out this, cut out that. You have IBS, you need to cut out all these foods, you need to take these supplements, like, you know, all of these different things that that are so common, you know, so many people do have chronic conditions, 60% of of Americans live with some chronic health condition, 40% have two or more. So, you know, I'm very much not alone in that experience. But I think it's because it is so increasingly common, I think people are searching for answers for those things. And unfortunately, the conventional healthcare system isn't really well set up to deal with chronic conditions, and especially like, diagnosing chronic conditions that may have lots of nebulous symptoms, the picture can be very unclear at first, and it can take a long time to get diagnosed. And that was certainly my experience and has been the experience of many people I know and have interviewed and and worked with. So there's this long phase for a lot of people, I think, where they're just like, I don't know what's going on. You know, my doctor's dismissing me or not giving me a lot of help or, you know, I'm being very underserved by the conventional system, even if I am being served somewhat. And so it, I think, creates this void that wellness culture easily steps in to fill with potentially really dangerous consequences for a lot of people. Yeah, I think many things I appreciate about this book, but something in particular is the empathy that you give to those of us who have fallen into wellness traps. And you talk about, you know, like you said, your your own chronic illnesses and how the pitfalls of the modern healthcare system, you know, can make us feel dismissed or abandoned. And it's easy to find solace in alternative medicine because there are a few things that the alternative system can do with something called the care effect, which you go into in the book, which is, you know, apply, well, I'll let you explain, but it's something that the healthcare system really lacks and can lead people in further because we all want to feel heard and cared for and not dismissed. So can you talk about that? Because that was one of the many eye-opening parts about, especially in the functional medicine section of this book. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, I think the care effect is really very real and definitely lacking, I think, in a lot of corners of conventional medicine, not that it's entirely lacking, because I think we can definitely find caring providers who give us that that sense of being held and being cared for. Um, but what the care effect is, is, is this part of a family of placebo effects that is related to the mind-body connection and sort of placebo effect means that you believe that something is helping or that you you have a certain expectation that something's going to help. And so it does. It actually creates real physical effects in the body um, in part by working on pain receptors like pain pain reduction pathways, the endogenous opioid system um, can be activated by expectations that something is going to help. And one thing that we can expect is going to help us is when a provider really seems to care for us and take an interest in our um, situation and spends lots of time with us and gives us empathy and this sense of being cared for um, really can raise the expectation that you're that you're getting help and you're getting care and therefore can help reduce symptoms. And so this is definitely something that happens more for things that have a component of pain involved, right? So it's not necessarily applicable to things like cancer because you know your expectations about 
getting care, your expectations about whether a particular medication is going to work or something can't actually fight cancer cells in your body, but it can help reduce the pain and the symptoms that might be associated with the cancer. So, you know, even in situations like that, where it's the placebo effect isn't having a real measurable impact on your condition, it still might have an impact on the symptoms that you're feeling and experiencing with the condition. So the care effect, I think, is really powerful. And it's something that, again and again, I hear people say, and I have had this in my own experience, too, that when you're working with someone who is sort of outside of the conventional healthcare system, who's more of an integrative or functional provider, or who's even further outside, like a, a complementary or alternative medicine provider, that oftentimes in those spaces, you get more time, you get more empathy, you get people who are asking questions and like really assuring you that they're going to get to the bottom of things. And unfortunately, we don't always get that in the conventional healthcare system where appointments can be, you know, five to 15 minutes, like 15 minutes is kind of like a long appointment in my experience, you know, and providers can be somewhat brusque and rushed, even if they are like really trying to take the time to work with you, they may not be able to do a lot of deep empathizing. They may not have a lot of solutions for you. They might give you one option and say, you know, try this, see if it works, come back if not, you know. And I think that can leave people really vulnerable to alternative treatments that that give them more hope, that give them more options, that make them feel more heard and understood. Because, you know, if you're suffering from something and you don't want to, like you're, you're hesitant about taking medication or you don't want to take pharmaceuticals because you feel like they're harsh, or you'd rather do something with fewer side effects that you think has fewer side effects to start. But the provider in question, the, the conventional medicine provider doesn't offer you that or doesn't sort of explain and walk through the steps or doesn't take the time to meet you in your hesitancy about taking a particular medication and explain the side effects and also the risks of not taking it or the alternatives and what the risks of those might be then you're sort of left to your own devices. And I think a lot of us, when left to our own devices in that way, will turn to Dr. Google or turn increasingly to Dr. Social Media and find these spaces where we can connect with other people who have chronic conditions, trade ideas. But then unfortunately, what often happens is we kind of get targeted as, you know, people who are looking for health information. There's now, you know, ads being served to us based on what we've searched for and um, things start to follow us around the internet. You know, we start to get pulled down this algorithmic rabbit hole of information that can often be, you know, mis and even disinformation. So misinformation being incorrect information and disinformation being incorrect information with intent to deceive. Um, you know, and so social media kind of radicalizes people in that way, which we can talk a little more about, but it puts people really at risk when they don't feel like they're getting the care that they need. And conversely, when people are having that care effect in in alternative medicine and wellness culture spaces, it can go a long way to helping them feel better to the point where I think it it can start to be very confusing sometimes because people feel like they're getting cared for and heard and understood. And then they're given these treatments or protocols that don't necessarily work and may actually have pretty severe side effects or other unintended consequences and start to feel worse because of that. But then they were feeling better because of the care effect. And so it's kind of like, you know, instead of thinking, okay, this provider is not giving me something that works or this treatment wasn't effective, 
the blame can often sort of shift to the individual or can start to feel, it can start to feel like, okay, well, we tried this one thing, it didn't work. So we have to do a harsher version of this thing. We have to do a stricter diet. We have to eliminate more foods. We have to add more supplements. We have to add more experimental sort of treatments and protocols. And so you can get down this path of adding on and on and on more and more stuff that is actually not helpful. But, you know, because of the because of the placebo effects that exist from, you know, the care effect to just the expectation that something's going to help and the expectation that natural is always better and something that is natural is going to be helpful. I think you can get sort of led pretty far down that path before realizing, oh, this isn't actually helpful. Yeah. I, I'm laughing because it's so one could. It's like, oh, I did. I I sure <laughs> did. I I relate hard hard relate a lot of hard relates in this book for me. <laughs> I know this is you interviewing me, but I'm curious to hear a few a few of your experiences in this too. I mean, I know I know a lot of them offline, but just for the folks listening, you know, to to hear some of what you went through. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when. We well, maybe we can just let everyone in on a on a little secret. There's a lost basement tapes version <laughs> of this conversation that we had some early recording interviews, but half of it was great, and the half that was great was about the history of all of this. And and I told you this before, but in your first book, Anti Diet, you go into the history of diet culture and how it began and and got to where it is today. And, and similarly, in this book, you do that with wellness culture. And I loved that part. That was really eye-opening to me. And so, we we talked about that. And then I was thinking about my own history with this part, especially in terms of functional medicine, because I think before I read this book, which seems so odd to even say that it ha this hadn't clicked with me before, but I hadn't really even fully made the connection between my orthorexia and anorexia and wellness culture. Like I knew that it was, I knew that orthorexia is, you know, this obsession with going down a wormhole, but I hadn't like thought about functional medicine as being related to that. And then when we were recording in the Lost Basement tapes, the the first part, I think I mentioned that as you were talking about some of this, I was like, oh, when I was really, really young and a family, I came back from study abroad and I had what a family friend who was maybe in school for functional medicine. Like, I'm not even sure she was, you know, she was one of my cousin's friends and she just, I thought she was really cool. I really liked her. I was just off to the races, you know? She told me I had a parasite. She told me to do this and this and this and this and this. And then and then I have a very addictive personality and where she would have stopped even, I then kept going and it snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. And I think in a way where a lot of this is just how it panned out for me, but it was so alternative from all the medicine that I had growing up, all the food that I had growing up. You know, we grew up in very different places, you on the West Coast. And I grew up in the Midwest and my, you know, my family owns fast food restaurants. So then it became sort of this identity and this rebellion. And then it was happened to coincide with a time where all of this was starting to, this is about 2012, 
starting to blow up on social media really, really slowly or social media was starting to exist, I guess. And I found community and I found an identity as someone would in like, you know, the nineties getting into grunge music or something, you know, it was, it was this alternative way of being. And at a time where I was malleable at a time where my career was malleable. And I think an interesting thing that you and I have discussed quite a bit is that our, when your career is in a malleable place, during the time where you get into to wellness or, or you have an eating disorder or a little bit of both in my case, you know, it can really shift the course of, of your career and your life. And I think I'm, I'm only now 10 years later starting to fully see the impacts of that. And, and reading your book was some of it felt so bleak in the sense of, Oh my gosh, everybody seems so bought in. I live in Los Angeles now and I just feel like there's just so much talk of wellness culture. It's so in the media it's, and then social media, it's just like amplified. And so it felt really comforting to, to see the research behind it. And, and then, you know, while you tell the truth and, and show it so comprehensively, you also, as you know, people will see when they get to spend time with the book and and even on episodes of this podcast, you always, and again, something I appreciate about you is like, okay, but what can we do about this? How can we move forward? It does feel really good in that way and comforting in that way. And that's what I found after reading it is like, I felt better after reading it. I was happy to know the information. And there was a little bit of like, oh man, I wish I would have known that then, but I know it now. And here's what we can do about it. And that felt really good. But going back briefly to the functional medicine bit, I, I think like you were saying, when someone comes in and applies care and empathy, we all want to be heard and and understood, you know, I think feeling misunderstood or feeling dismissed, especially for all people, but especially for, for women. And I think especially when we're trying to figure out what's going on with us, having someone apply care, even for me with a friend or with, with anyone, it, it kind of reminded me of like the dating term that, that, that I, I'm not even sure I fully understand what it means, but have you heard about love bombing? Oh yeah, absolutely. It kind of feels like what can happen in this at the beginning of finding a practitioner who is listening and, and has more time and spends more time with you it feels like, oh my God, okay. You're like the, you go from black and white to color. Like, and also in, in diet culture, how that, that feeling that, that we've talked about before too, of diet starts tomorrow. I'm going to be a new person once I, you know, and then of course it's, it's bleak and it's their ups and downs with everything, but it, it sort of reminds me of, of that. And going off of that, two of the most chilling parts, I think in the section about functional medicine specifically, one of them really made my stomach drop like on a roller coaster was when you you spoke about how people who, like myself, have a history of disordered eating say that to a new practitioner, as I have done, whether it's been with a functional medicine doctor or in my case, mostly with just having moved a lot of times and going to different 
doctors in the healthcare system. Something you taught me to do was to say that like out of the gate and to say like, I don't actually want to be weighed. I'd like to turn around. And, and I know you've had this experience too. And, and same and with having a baby. And sometimes it's, it's really hard for doctors and just people in general to remember everything and, and take all this into account. But I know we've both had experiences where, you know, I remember once in New York, I got a piece of paper and I, even though they were like, yeah, 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 no problem about the weight. And then like, there's my weight and there's my, you know, or it's just like, they said it after whatever it is, like these things we, we, it takes a lot sometimes for me to take care of myself in that way. And to actually be honest and say that, and then have it disregarded or just and not even, of course it's not purposeful, but I think something that in the functional medicine space with these diets in particular with elimination diets and cutting out all these things, they probably just don't know how intense that is for someone who has a history with disordered eating. And the chilling part was when you said like, this is something that I have a history with the doctor still will say, go on to a, this diet and cut this out and, and do all of those things. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I will say, you know, to anyone listening who's a fan of functional medicine or practitioner, like I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush and say the whole field or everyone in it is leading people into disordered eating. But I do think that the tenets of functional medicine and also of a related field, lifestyle medicine, are largely based on cutting out food, right? On food as medicine, the idea of food as medicine. And I think when you get into thinking about food as medicine, that's a really slippery slope when you're living in diet and wellness culture, right? When, when we're in a culture where people are already demonizing certain foods and elevating others, and there's so much moralization about food kind of in the ether, just that we've all absorbed our whole lives, telling people like, oh, even if it's like the gentlest possible approach, you may want to avoid this, or you might consider eating this before this or whatever. It's really hard to, well, A, there's not always great science or evidence like really behind that, right? Sometimes it's really extrapolating from like very early stage research. But B, even when there is good evidence behind those sorts of recommendations, I think it's really hard for people to hear them in a way that is not black and white or that doesn't risk slipping easily into black and white thinking because most people in our society, I think, are on that sort of seesaw of, okay, we can do like a flexible dietary control thing, but it tips really easily into rigid dietary control. You know, there's been research on this that flexible and rigid dietary control are like part of the same spectrum, part of the same sort of plane, as it were. And intuitive eating is like on a totally different plane or spectrum, and it's not related to that sort of dietary control idea. But I think people who are living in this culture and who've been socialized and into thinking about food in certain ways and body size in certain ways and exercise in certain ways, like it's really hard to have any sort of prescription related to food and exercise that that doesn't risk turning very disordered to the point where like, you know, when you think about diabetes, which is a condition that unfortunately people have to think about, especially type one diabetes, but in some cases type two as well, where you're having to like count carbohydrates for insulin dosing. That is something that can make people so obsessive about food to the point where people with diabetes are at 
many times higher risk. Like I think I saw one statistic that it was like 20 times higher risk than the general population for eating disorders. And women, young women with type one diabetes are like 30 or 40% of them meet criteria for eating disorders. And of course, there's potentially other things that can account for that too, right? Like there might be hormonal things contributing to people's disordered eating that are specific to diabetes. But I think, and the research in this area suggests that it's largely to do with the hyper-focus on what you're eating and the the need to like limit or restrict certain foods that's causing people to have such a higher risk of disordered eating. And so I think that's something that is just not really talked about in the mainstream healthcare system or the mainstream wellness culture systems, you know, like alternative medicine, integrative and functional medicine, I think don't really take disordered eating into account either, just like the conventional system. You know, people aren't really, that's not really on people's minds. I think people think of eating disorders as this small silo that's very separate from healthcare and medicine and, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom and diet and wellness culture is like, everybody could stand to eat better. Everybody could stand to lose weight. We don't eat enough vegetables. We don't, we eat too many processed food, blah, 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 right? This sort of vision of the standard American diet, quote unquote, that is supposedly out of control and leading people down a bad path. And so like, that's where healthcare providers of all stripes, I think, feel the need to focus their energy. And I think the conventional healthcare system, you know, there are certainly doctors within the conventional system who might take a slightly more integrative or functional approach, but not be sort of like fully immersed in that approach, who might be leading people onto diets and stuff too. But I think I do one thing I do appreciate about some of my conventional healthcare providers is how like, not at all concerned they are about diets, how they sort of look at other factors related to health that have nothing to do with what I'm eating or what I weigh or anything like that. And of course, as a smaller bodied person, I have the privilege that doctors will overlook that for me when they might not for a larger bodied person. But I think there even are healthcare providers out there who will not bring weight into the conversation for larger bodied folks as well, although that's harder to find. But I think that when you get into like integrative and functional and alternative spaces, food is such an integral part of the conversation. Food is like the number one thing, you know, the food is medicine belief is really front and center there. And I think that's where it becomes really risky. I think that's where it becomes a slippery slope into disordered eating for many, many people. And you don't necessarily know ahead of time who is at risk or who is going to fall into that, you know, disordered eating place because yes, people who have a history of it are definitely vulnerable and at risk. And I would definitely not recommend to someone who comes in and says, I have a history of disordered eating. I would not recommend that they go on a diet or elimination diet or protocol or plan eliminating foods or restricting foods or whatever it might be, unless they have diabetes where they might need to count carbohydrates or something. But even then there's ways of doing it that are not demonizing of carbs and don't require people to cut out carbs entirely and stuff. But I think when you look at just, you know, someone who doesn't have a history or doesn't know they have a history necessarily or think of themselves as having a history of disordered eating, or maybe maybe has like a really positive relationship with food in their body when they come in, folks like that are still vulnerable. And I know people who came in never having dieted, never having worried about the size and shape of their body, and were recommended to cut out foods and do elimination diets because of a certain health condition you know, working with an integrative or functional provider, or even sometimes with a conventional provider, and then 
really tumbled into disordered eating and perhaps even full-blown eating disorders in some cases. And, you know, their relationship with food and their bodies was very damaged. And in part, that was because they were getting so much positive reinforcement for the weight they lost or for having cut out these foods, right? And being so quote unquote good and healthy in the, you know, in the eyes of people around them. And that's where like the cultural element comes into play too, because it's not just the provider's fault. It's like, and you know, not to blame the provider entirely either, but like, I think the culture like sets us all up for this kind of thing, you know? and reinforces the idea that the person was doing good by cutting out foods and by losing weight, et cetera. So it's just really, really tricky. And I think, understandably, a lot of people are attracted to providers who have a more holistic or integrative or functional sort of view of things because we think that that's going to help us. We think that that's going to be the key to unlocking whatever is going on for us that conventional healthcare hasn't been able to address effectively. And, you know, I get that. I get why there's that belief, because in some cases, we do feel much more cared for in those alternative systems and in wellness, you know, sort of oriented spaces. And yet, I think it's really important to look at the, the risks and the unintended consequences of that approach. And, to say that it's not without risk, you know? And I think sometimes people when they're desperate and I've felt this way too, like, what do I have to lose? What do I have to lose by trying this? I might as well try, even if it's not effective, what harm could it do? And in some cases it could actually do a significant amount of harm. And so I think seeing it as something with potential serious side effects rather than saying, oh, this is the natural approach. So therefore it's good. And I don't need to like be skeptical or worry is important. Yeah, it's interesting because, like you said, so many people don't know that they might be susceptible to having a disordered relationship with food until they start to have one. You know, like in my case, when I first encountered a functional medicine doctor, I was mostly okay with food or in my body. So I thought, but I was also really young, you know, I was like 19. And so I think I don't even know how my twenties and early thirties would have gone without having this as part of, it was so in my brain, even in college, in my college environmental journalism class, we were taught Michael Pollan. We were taught about standard. That was when I first remember hearing about standard American diet. Like I remember it being on a test, you know, and it's very cultural. Even, you know, my, I grew up with a lot of family members in larger bodies and all of them actually. And my mom would always say when someone asked her about her weight, which is like just wild that, you know, that's a thing that people even do, but it would happen quite a lot when I was with her just as a kid. And someone would mention, you know, are you losing weight? Have you lost weight? Something like that. And she would always say the same thing, which was always trying, always trying. Just like, as you say, how are you? Nice to meet you. Always like, I just kind of was like, all right, well, when I get older, I'll say always trying when someone asks that quickly, like, it's just so pervasive in our culture. And until I, you know, met you and so many others that have been on your podcast and have really informed my thoughts on weight stigma and, all of these issues that we're talking about, it just makes it so complex. And I think that anytime you're you're focusing on food or, or talking about it with a practitioner, having to track anything at all, 
for me, that's a real slippery slope. And I wouldn't have known that starting out. And a lot of people probably don't know that until it's kind of too late and you need to do something about that. And I think, yeah, the, the care effect can kind of put blinders on to some of that or, or just, you know, keep you more stuck in it. And then social media can add another layer to that. And of course, this is so in our culture. And I, I want to get to talking about social media a little bit. But before we shift out of functional medicine, I, I said earlier, two things really were chilling for me. And the other one, other than the part about a history of disordered eating, is a fascinating section of your book where you talk about the word hysteria and how the hysteria diagnosis. Well, I'll just let you talk about what what happened with the hysteria diagnosis because I think it's an anecdote that speaks to to this in a way that was really a watershed moment for me. <laughs> yeah, so I think with hysteria, there's a really interesting history there that kind of connects it to what we've been talking about with the care effect and sort of why people feel dismissed in the conventional healthcare system. Because I think there's a piece of it where there's this long history of dismissing women's pain and dismissing women's symptoms, right? And this goes back to Greek antiquity, where the womb was considered to be like the source of all illnesses for women or many, many illnesses that women could experience. The idea that there was such a thing as a wandering womb, that your womb could just like wander around into different parts of your body and cause problems was part of ancient Greek medicine. And then, you know, and the word for uterus in Greek is hystera or in ancient Greek, I guess, is hystera. So that's where the, the name hysteria apparently came from. There is some dispute over like whether Hippocrates invented the idea of hysteria or whether it was other doctors in Greek antiquity, but the notion of a wandering womb certainly was there and was being, you know, blamed for for all kinds of women's ailments. And from there, the notion of hysteria had a long history, like it kind of continued to exist in various forms through decades and millennia or decades and centuries. And once mental health started to be a little more understood and the brain started to be seen as the site of potentially many ailments, hysteria was labeled as a mental health diagnosis and it was put into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses. And uh, it actually stayed there until 1980. Like it was not taken out until almost the whole way through the 20th century. And so that notion of hysteria as a mental health condition was a way to blame any sort of unexplained symptoms that a woman might be experiencing. And, you know, at that point, it was men could be labeled with it too, but I think it was still very much conceived of as like a female issue. The idea that your mental health or your a mental problem, this supposed problem of hysteria, was at the root of all kinds of unexplained physical symptoms, I think is still something that shows up in conventional healthcare in various ways. And it's really tricky to talk about because there is a connection between the mind and the body and mental health conditions can have physical impacts and physical health conditions can also cause mental health impacts. There's very much a feedback loop there that happens. But for me, as someone with PTSD and anxiety, like I definitely have come to understand the impact of those mental health conditions and just chronic stress in general on my physical body and physical symptoms. And 
that is true. You know, we see that in the research that chronic stress has all these negative health effects for people, especially long term. And we can't just go blaming any unexplained symptoms someone has on mental health issues. And I think there needs to be a lot of nuance to the conversation about the impacts that mental health can have on our physical well-being, not just sort of saying, well, you know, I can't explain it in this five-minute visit or in a series of like five to 15-minute visits and a few imaging studies we've done or whatever. Therefore, it must be stress or it must be anxiety or depression or like you need to just go on an antidepressant or something. I think that's unfortunately what some conventional healthcare providers will end up conveying to patients, even if it's not directly saying it's all in your head or like you're just a woman who's hysterical or whatever, right? Like the sort of overt misogyny, I think, has gone down over the years, although there, it certainly exists, I know, in pockets. But I think for the most part, doctors won't come out and say, it's all in your head. But they might say, some of this could be related to stress. Have you tried meditation? Have you tried an antidepressant? Have you tried an anti-anxiety? Let me give you a referral to a therapist. And even when that's really well-meaning, and even if it is couched in a really nuanced conversation about the mind-body connection and stuff, I think people who are desperate and experiencing symptoms that are causing them pain, when they hear that, they can take that as a real dismissal and as a real kind of slap in the face. It feels like saying, well, what you're experiencing physically doesn't count. And I know for me too, I don't remember because it was, you know, 20 plus years ago at this point when I was really in the early stages of figuring out some of my chronic health conditions that I know now played a role in how I was feeling back then, in addition to disordered eating, you know, which was not really addressed at the time. But what I remember of that time is that feeling of dismissal, that feeling of people saying, yeah, you know, you should probably go to therapy, even if that's not exactly how they said it, or even if it's not exactly what they said, you know, but it's, that was sort of what I picked up. And I think that sort of legacy of dismissal of people's pain, and especially women's pain and difficulty of the conventional medical system in accounting for chronic pain or chronic symptoms, chronic illness, makes it really appealing to go into a space where they're not telling you that, except, or it doesn't feel like they're telling you that, right? It feels like they're giving you empathy and support. The interesting thing is that actually in some cases, people do end up feeling dismissed and made to feel like it's all in their head or made to feel like it's this just is what it is. Like I talked to someone in the book, a woman named Jennifer, who asked that I just use her first name, who said that at first when she worked with this functional medicine provider, she felt really heard and understood and empathized with. And the nurse practitioner was giving her time and space to like really figure out what was happening. And that was something she hadn't gotten in the conventional healthcare system. So she felt really good and was like, you know, this person's going to get to the bottom of it. And then eventually, after a bunch of tests and protocols and stuff that hadn't worked, this provider was like, well, you know, when your whole system is inflamed like yours is, you're just going to have pain. That was a tipping point for her of thinking like, okay, now I feel totally dismissed by this person. And the care effect wore off for her and she was able to decide to go to a different provider. And what ended up happening was she had a tumor that that had been totally missed in this functional medicine approach. It was a tumor that was a very rare and aggressive type of tumor that was living on her pancreas and was intertwined with critical blood vessels. And the doctor said, you know, she she said she had the surgery like the day or the week before her 38th birthday. 
And the doctor said, this is such a, like a rare and aggressive type of tumor. And it was so intertwined with these blood vessels. Like if we hadn't caught it and had the surgery now, you probably wouldn't have lived to see 45. Obviously, that's not something that happens every day or to everyone by any means. It's a very rare case. And I think it speaks to the issues in these wellness systems and these, you know, alternative systems of healthcare that say everything is attributable to food and inflammation and gut microbiome and stuff that's not really understood or measurable and that where the science is in a really young state and providers are sort of over-interpreting information like reading tests and lab values in non-standard ways and saying, oh, well, in our practice, we see this as suboptimal, even if it says normal on the lab, but we really want to see it at this level in, in our practice or whatever. Getting so granular and like specific and, and into the weeds on these things that don't have really good scientific evidence behind them, I think can lead providers to miss real conditions that people have that actually do have good evidence behind them and good treatment that's available when they're caught early enough and when it's found by someone who knows what to look for. And one of the things with Jennifer's experience that really stood out to me is that she said none of the providers she saw before, conventional or functional, palpated her abdomen and located the place where the pain was. And that to me just seems like such a basic part of patient care. Like she came in with abdominal pain was one of her symptoms. And so it just seems to me like that's something that any good provider should be doing, right? Is checking out like where the pain is and to get so in the weeds with other explanations when you haven't even done that sort of basic level workup feels like a real missed opportunity, if not malpractice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, it's such an intense story and that was my conversation with Christy Harrison. I'm ending it there, but if you want to hear us talk more, go to Rethinking Wellness and you can hear the rest of this conversation where I ask her about the connection between diet culture and wellness culture and how that's changed since she wrote this book or through writing this book. We get way more into social media and, and much, much more. So like she said, if you want to listen to that immediately, you can become a paid subscriber of hers, of Rethinking Wellness, and you can get that now. Or you can wait and not get it early, but it will be available and I really hope you check out her book, not just because she's my friend, not just because I've been helping her promote it and, and planning some book events around it, which I'm actually co-hosting one or I'm, I'm hosting one where I'm going to be her conversation partner at a bookstore here in LA. And it's going to be on Zoom. If you want to hear me interview her live, I would love to, to have you there on May 2nd. So I'll put the link in the show notes of where you can sign up for that. It's free. And if you want to buy a book or pre-order a book, I, I think you would really like it. I really do. Thank you so much for being here and listening. You know where to find me. I'm at Let It Out with three T's, this podcast Instagram, or my Instagram's just my name. And we will be back next week with, you know, it's it's my birthday and this podcast birthday, 10 years of this podcast. My close friend, she's basically my we call her my non-birth mom, Sasha Jones, comes on every year to have a conversation with me for my birthday and that will be next week and then we're taking a week off because it's also best friend of the show 
previous guest and the editor of this podcast, Brianna Bain. It's her birthday as well. So we're going to take a week off and then we'll be back with so many more guests, including musician Sam Burton and just a bunch more all summer long for you. Thank you for being here. Talk to you very soon. And if you want to be on the Let It Out letter list, the link to sign up for my newsletter is also available for you. Thank you.